Hey, you were still here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Karen Lambert from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And we're going to discuss the article, What Would Bell Hooks Think of the Remote Teaching, Learning, and Physical Education During the COVID-19 Pandemic? A Critical Review of the Literature. Um, it was published in Sport Education and Society. Um, you can find a full citation of this article in the notes. Um, Karen, welcome back to the podcast. You've been on before, and it was a great episode. Um, so thanks for coming up. No worries. Thank you very much for inviting me again. Yeah. So, um, I guess the first question to situate this for people who don't know, uh, I guess the good startup question is who is Bell Hooks? Yeah, look, um, I, I, I probably a bit remiss. I'm going to also acknowledge my two colleagues who I wrote the paper with, um, uh, Risto, and that's, uh, Chris Hudson. He's a PhD student at Melbourne University in a real cracker jack. So it was awesome to work with somebody who really gets excited about Excel spreadsheets. And uh, Carla Laguetti, who many of your listeners will be familiar with from Victoria University. And, um, it was kind of on the back of Carla's uh, an article that she wrote during the pandemic that got her a little bit curious about, you know, what we were doing and what we were feeling and whether it was effective or not. And so that's kind of the context. So her big, bold question that she posed to me is, you know, can we write a paper that actually asks, did we do, what did we do in the pandemic? And, you know, like how um, critically informed was it? Mm -hmm. And uh, her idea there was um, was a terrific one, I think, really, rather than recording um, how people were feeling and what was really going on kind of at a blow-by-blow -blow kind of uh, uh, an account, um, we decided to turn to a narrative review, which um, allowed us to kind of really heavily theorize uh, a lot of the, the literature that was going on and that we found. So for those folks who might not have heard of Bell Hooks, um, um, I, I, I can't recommend her work enough. I, I used it a lot in my own PhD. She was certainly one of the first critical feminists that I turned to. Um, when I started reading in uh, around critical theory. Um, so she's been highly influential in the States, um, I think 69 or so. She actually passed away at the end of 2021 before we could send her a copy of the paper. Um, but she's pretty renowned for her work in uh, around feminism and race and also in education. And um, so she's a critical, she has a critical pedagogy background. So she's interest, uh, influenced a lot by Freire. And of course, as a um, kind of a black and also queer-leaning feminist, um, she was really interested in intersectionality and way social factors influence learning. And um, I think that was one of the key driving things, especially for Carla, um, given her background and her interest um, as a Brazilian scholar as well. So Hooks um, rattled some ivory towers in her time and ruffled quite a lot of feathers um, around exposing issues of power and public inst institutions and the oppression that kind of went to that. So the engaged pedagogy, theoretically, what we got um, from her work is taken from a book called Teaching to Transgress, which a lot of your listeners would probably possibly be familiar with. So one of the first times I, I saw her name was in grad school when I read read her work. And um, I was I was always curious why and i'm not sure if you know why is it that she does not capitalize her name ah yeah though i i'm not quite sure about the letters exactly but it's actually a pen name her real name is, is uh a gloria watkins and 
um, she named um, herself as a, um, based upon her grandmother from her, some sort of story around her grandmother. I'm not sure whether that, who the grandmother's actual name was, but you can not quote me on that. We can go and have a bit of a look. But certainly, um, you know, the, the decapitalization is also an act of, uh, you know, critical thinking and, and critical disruption to standard ways of thinking and writing and authoring. And so, you know, whenever we use the, the name, it, it's actually really important, I think, to continue to do that. Yeah. No, I didn't know that. Thank you. Um, so you have a lot of really good examples in the paper about obviously the challenges that uh, teachers faced with social distancing caused by the COVID uh, pandemic and how teachers reacted to those challenges. And I think those are well uh, laid out. I'm wondering if you can start off by talking about some of those challenges and the influence they had on teachers' uh, pedagogical practice. Um, yeah, um, I think from the outset, I'm going to say, look, it was challenging. There's no doubt about it being a time that um, was confusing and disruptive and also, you know, like stressful and uh, upsetting. So I, I, I hope we made that clear in our paper um, and the idea that we were critiquing the work for a particular kind of thing rather than criticizing, you know, what was playing out. And I think that's a really important way to think about using critical theorists like Hook uh, in our work. Um, it's a resource for us to look at things in a different kind of way. Because I think the whole process was messy and it was really uncertain. Uh, and this necessity to, you know, to, to socially distance, to, to get out of our universities, to get out of our schools, to close them all up and to go somewhere else, go home usually, it, it was really urgent um, and it was really fast. And so we had to, everyone had to be thinking really, really quickly. And that was most definitely one of those challenges. How were we going to um, provide alternative learning opportunities to face-to-face -face teaching in, in physical education and in peace? And that's probably one of our first challenges. And another one was the speed at which it happened. It was so urgent, but it was also really fast. Um, we had to really quickly, um, like we were at uni one day and then the next day we were at home. So it was it's kind of as quick as that. So we had to reflect and adapt and rebuild things really quickly to be able to do the next teaching episode. And I think that that relates probably to what I think is the third challenge that um, technology in the space was actually also changing really rapidly. Um, we were having to kind of try and use Zoom and then use teams and then use messenger and everything was getting updated and along the way and i think that that next challenge was around our relative unfamiliarity with those online tools and some of the principles of distance learning and um i think from the get-go that was always going to threaten uh how we uh, engaged uh, students in our classrooms and how they you know engaged as well so i think really early on it was a discomfort and an unfamiliarity with technology and uh, this need to get really uncomfortable really quickly. Um, and so I think that created anxiety and worry and this kind of weird circle of things just kept going on and on every week. We were in the same situation of worry, worry, worry. Um, it, it created a survival attitude, I think, um, which kind of came through very strongly in the article that we looked at. Yeah, and I, and I think you you write about that really well of that survival attitude like you're just trying to stay afloat you're not thinking about critically like what is happening and you're kind of just like i need to make it to tomorrow and i need to make my class 
relatively engaging when people don't turn on their cameras and like what are what are we doing um so one of one of the personas who sprouted from this uh from this pandemic uh was joe wick um and he was a um you know a, an influencer we had a podcast about it um we uh the ice of connect had a uh big thing about it uh, led to a paper that you co-authored it has been a phenomenon it's one of the top 10 most listened to podcasts out of 300 on on my uh on my podcast so it, it really like hit a nerve so i'm wondering if you can share with us the critique of the online high intensity interval training that was passed off as pe um Granted, in England, but I think it happened. It just like became this kind of global phenomenon. Yeah, and I and I think look, I mean, like you've mentioned, Carla, Carla and I uh, with Freehand Lynch, um, we gave Joe Wicks a bit of a serve <laughs> in our paper, and it, it really stirred a few few um, people up. And and it also at the same time we were thinking about you know what is physical education as well. So it was a, a dual if 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 a TV personality can be physical education. What does that mean? Physical education actually is. So um, the idea of this um, Joe Wicks high intensity machine um, was promoted around the world as PE, and and he very quickly and very cleverly. I mean, if we look just behind this, it was a marketing exercise. It was a persona, as you said. It was someone who was very aware with what was was a, a big pain point um, for, for all of us. We were struggling to work it out, and he already had a YouTube channel, so he was onto it straight up. Um, and then all over the papers, and now there's cookbooks, and there's baby clothes, and there's goodness only know what what what. So, um, it, it, physical education in that kind of way has become commodified, and and Joe Wicks was one of those um, first. Um, folks to do that and and I'm sure others jumped onto the bandwagon there but what it essentially meant was that that these quick fix kinds of pedagogies if we can call them that because some folks have it kind of got put in place unquestionably as um, a, a, a physical education class which means that um, they stood in for teachers they stood in for us as well so yeah, we we did a pretty hard critique on on the on the ableist, sexist, racist, genderist, classist, et cetera, practices um, that that sit behind that kind of approach to movement and to selling a product um, and to selling a product that um, I guess you know is a little bit abusive because we were all pretty down and out. It was a pretty hard kind of situation. Um, a couple of other authors um, have argued, you know, um, um, bold. And, and and their colleagues have argued that it's like this was a branded celebrity thing. Um, we kind of had no hope, and he made a ton of money. It was very opportunistic, and and because we were desperate for things, we we did a couple of things. We used Joe Wick's sessions as our physical education, and the second thing we did was we we modelled our own teaching on that Joe Wick's model. So there was a lot of teaching that became okay, kids, here I am in the room, um, follow me for 30 minutes and this is what your class is going to be and then see you later, see you tomorrow um, kind of thing. And so I, I guess, you know, we were kind of concerned at the time that during this turmoil that um, with something like that to fall back on, that any sort of creative pedagogies were kind of going to go out the window, which meant that 
you know, you, you needed to have a computer, you needed to have access to YouTube, you needed to, you know, do all of these things. And nobody, nobody questioned it. Nobody, nobody contested it or questioned it as a as a delivery of pre-recorded meaningless movements would be physical education. Um, and it'll be interesting to uh, to see if that's actually stuck in people's programs. Tell the truth. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about, and and this is I this is what I think came up in that in those discussions is there were some people who said, "Hey, I do this," you know, like. I go on YouTube and I watch a yoga video and I follow that yoga video and it's really good for me. Or this, you know, video motivates me and gets me to be physically active. And, you know, when it's coming from that adult perspective of like, I'm doing this for a workout because I've already had my physical education up until I was 18 and maybe some university and I understand how my body moves and what it does. And I'm using this as a service versus doing it for a 10 year old or a 12 year old, uh, and kind of taking the, the education out of it and just pushing really hard to just do, you know, do the, you know, the, do the exercise and activity and following. So, um, I'm wondering, do you, do you know if, is Joe Wick still like a thing? Because there's no, no mention of this person in the U S that I, that I have heard, it's not in the conversation. So I'm wondering what was his kind of bounce off of this? Oh, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's still a thing most definitely. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, like everything, I think he makes everything now. They've, they've probably got him, you know, he's, he met the queen before she passed away, you know? So, you know, he's, he's very popular in the UK and he remain, he will remain popular in the UK. He's just one of those new celebrities. He, he's just one of those people now in that space. And it, he kind of was before, but this is rocket hit him. And he, and, he, and he now just has a massive online presence and a massive um, bank balance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, you used a, narr a critical narrative review. Um, can you explain what that is and kind of how, how you did that? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, I think there's lots of different ways to do literature reviews. Um, and so I think, you know, for those folks who are listening in and, you know, d do or don't know about those ways, you know, they range from very systematic approaches that you have to, you know, record and you, and you have to register and, and these sorts of things, through to scoping reviews and, and other kinds of reviews that are a little bit uh, unless it less, you know, having to register and taking step-by-step -step specific uh, approaches that are um, documented. Um, that said, you still have to document a, a critical narrative review. And it's a, it's a, it's a form of literature that a review that, that situates your analysis as looking for this, the story or the narrative that appears and analyzing it um, critically using um, a, a theory. So in some kind of sense, it's related to um, a little bit of thinking deductively about hooks. So our, our, our first approach was to think about, well, we've got a theory and of her theory, we called her work a theory, um, engaged pedagogy, we called it a theory or a framework. Um, and we wanted to think about the social and cultural nuances and the context of the people's lives that were happening at the time that these remote strategies were happening. So we were wanting to think about and look in the data and think about how um, 
these approaches were promoted or hindered. Um, and especially with regards to difference and diversity. So who, who was benefiting from particular kinds of approaches and, and who wasn't and who was left out, which were all kinds of thinking to do with hooks, you know, because she's really focused on this notion of, you know, oppression and assistance of oppression, as well as um, engaging young people, uh, in, you know, in their learning. So we had that lens and engaged pedagogy. Um, and so we deductively looked at the, the papers first. So we 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 went to the um idea that we what we would look for in the papers would be related to hooks's work and what we found which was really interesting was was hook spoke heaps about this engaged pedagogy but she never really jotted down uh a, a little framework or you know like um um ashley casey might say little model <laughs> little model space there was no model based thing and, and i reckon it's kind of not her style to do that because she, she had conversations about this actually having to be a heartfelt and passionate way in which to think about diversity and difference and so she didn't jot it down but she kind of had some underlying features to it which was you know troubling the status quo and oppression and and and, and equity and, and these kinds of things so but what we did find um was um uh, a thesis, piece of thesis work turning to a book um, written by Florence, and she, in her in her work, Florence did an in depth analysis of of uh, Hooks's work, and and she teased out for us um, five kinds of um, I guess we call them um, perspectives or principles um, that pitted um, what Hooks was saying that she had a trouble with traditional learning. Um, being uh, operating in particular ways and Florence said well so here's what it should look like so some of the problems that Hooks identified was how knowledge was being um, portrayed and so um, uh, Florence worked with that and said well we need to reconceptualize knowledge what is knowledge and who holds knowledge um, Hooks speaks about a lack of passion so um, Florence had incorporating passion so, and Hooks speaks a lot about passion in teaching so one of the first things that we actually did in this process was the typical um, research um, literature review process which was you know your search terms your inclusion exclusion criteria well how would you select the studies make a table extract the data all of those sorts of things and it's when the data analysis phase comes into that that this becomes um, a little bit different so we took a first uh, strike at this and we did it um, uh, inductively to take a little bit of a look at the kind of pedagogy that people were actually looking at so we wanted to actually be able to see let the data talk to us um, first so we used the data extraction table to indicate to us or to summarize for us what kinds of things were they worried about what did they focus on and what kind of pedagogies were used and we've got a table in the in the in the findings um, that really speaks nicely to that um, as well. And then in the second phase, then the the more critical aspect of this narrative review was then using Florence's work and book and Hooks's work to develop a deeper understanding of each one of those kind of five principles or characteristics. And what that helped us to do was move a little bit closer to um, interrogating the kinds of pedagogies that were being deployed. So for one one part, um, the inductive, we lifted things, summarized things, and the other we went, well, okay, well, what does that mean? 
And what does that mean from a perspective of, you know, traditional approaches to knowledge or the disconnect between theory and practice or the student empowerment or multiculturalism or passion? And those were the things that we took from uh, Hooks's work and also Florence's work to then use that framework to ask ourselves the question. And that's why we ask it quite late in the paper, actually. Um, you know, what would Bell Hooks look, think about this? Um, and that's where we overlaid her principles um, to come up with, a, um, I guess, a loose kind of answer. So a long way to get to it, but the first part was the summary and the data extraction, and the second part was the critical narrative review. So the first part works very similarly to a lot of different literature reviews. It's the It's the second stage that kind of brings that critical aspect to it. Uh, so there's a sure. lot, lot of detail about the research you found in the literature. Um, what are some of the most interesting or unexpected things that you found uh, through through the process? Um, yeah, I know there's a lot. It's a long paper to read, and it, it was it was fascinating to try and write actually to work out you know like what it was that was going to be useful to inform practices that were going on, and then also maybe to inform the future. And I, I think some of the things that popped out for me um, are around um, the interesting and unexpected um, appear do appear in a table. I think it's um, I think it's table one in in the paper. So that's nice and neat. We, we we put two columns, and fundamentally we just we we try to identify the characteristics of the papers and of the publications that were in them and what they were doing. And so we, we did that in, in two kind of columns. Firstly, what we called um, remote learning enablers. And they were the things like you needed power connection to plug your computer in. Um, you needed a computer. Um, you needed the internet. So we, we, we first started looking at some of the basics. Um, and so I guess with regards to that, one of the surprises were that it was kind of taken for granted that everyone would actually have those basics. They'd have power. They'd have the internet. They'd have a computer. Um, and I think we all know that, that some young people or many young people during the pandemic didn't actually have those things. Mm. Um, so most of the most of the papers talked about these enablers and what we thought the enablers were were all the ICT things that people were rushing around trying to kind of go, oh, no, Messenger, should I use Teams? Should I use Zoom? Um, you know, what kind of access do I need? Um, all those sorts of things. And so um, that was that quick, urgent need for a new way of teaching online. And I think that was a, you know, the personal response that went it went went with that was what dominated the literature. And I guess that was a little bit of a surprise for us that that really most of the literature spoke about how hard it was, how hard it was to get online. Um, and so distinctly absent from that, I think, were these things like social justice and access and devices and so accessibility straight away hooks would just go oh well that's not fair right mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of the teachers you know were talked about or surveying lots surveys were a very popular way to find out this information and so that's really hard too because you don't get a lot of information you know like why did you choose that for example and and how did that how did it work we, we were just recording things. We were just saying, okay, well, here's what we did and here's the experience. So um, teachers struggled technologically. Um, we weren't prepared in terms of skills or competencies for what was happening and going on. And I guess 
from me, there's, and, from, and for, for all of us, it was a surprise given past research in our field that was telling us this is a thing. You know, online teaching is a thing. You know, um, um, uh, Goodyear, Casey, there's been a lot of people who've been talking about um, online learning and how it's working. And so it surprised us that um, it was it was perceived to be so like new and novel. Um, many um, spoke about this um, tension and anxiety around well, the PEs are face to face to be taught face to face. It can't be taught in any kind of other way because it's this embodied, I guess, subject um, that everybody needed it to be in the same place at the same time, kind of thing. Um, interesting um that was interesting um but that it was just identified as a problem there weren't very many solutions to it i think student health and well-being um um was no surprise that people were concerned with it or talked about it what it was a little bit of a surprise i guess was um that few articles actually talked about with regards to health and well-being what um what the educators um actually did or what the impact of COVID was on young people um, at that time. And so I would have thought um, potentially that there might have been an opportunity to, to talk more about um, health and well-being because we were all um, in this kind of situation and, you know, finding it a bit tough and a bit rough. Um, but yeah, so there was a few surprises um, about, and, I, and I think um, probably a few things that most people were not surprised by. Yeah. And I think the, the survey piece is interesting because... A lot of it's also very teacher focused. It's about what are you doing as a teacher? Like, how are you, um, you know, struggling or what are the good things that are happening? Um, because there was a, at least in the US and I know some colleagues that I've talked to, it's like the, the whole like ethics board was shut down. Like you are not allowed to go into um, elementary schools or middle schools or high schools and ask these students anything like there's no more research being conducted in schools so the questionnaires were a way to get through that and then I think it was teacher focused because people kind of navigated around there and posted some questionnaire online and said hey I'm not asking the school district to participate in this but I'm asking this specific teacher online who randomly clicks on this uh, link to answer these questions. So there's a way to get around that. And I think that it had to like skew the skew the type of research that was done because students and and probably rightfully so, like let them let them deal with this in school and not have some researcher come in and ask them all these probing questions. But um, so I'm, I'm sure that there was like a tilt there um, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit about how that kind of affected what type of research there was. Um, but I'm wondering if you can give a couple examples of the pedagogies and resources that were used to teach PE and, and also PEAT during social distancing. We talked a little bit about the high intensity interval training via uh, YouTube or something like that. Yeah, look, I mean, online instructional approaches now whether that was synchronous or asynchronous dominated um and and so that meant things like um videos um were very popular um now whether that was instruction videos of a teacher or of a student whether they were 
the teacher was performing and students were following or whether it was pre-recorded. And, and these kinds of mechanisms were used for um, assessment as well and um, for demonstrations uh, of activities. And it was uh, very much a, a leading and a following uh, kind of aspect uh, there. Direct teacher instruction, I think, is probably worthwhile to think about where, where it just a lot of um, lecture, lecture style and direct content delivery. Um, there was use of visual aids, things like, you know, photography, some of the papers, um, um, used photography to, for young people to stimulate their involvement. Um, some, uh, there was a paper, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a paper about, um, going out into your environment and taking, a, you know, photos of your local environment and the and nature and, and, and having conversations about that. Um, a lot of resource sharing, um, especially amongst the teachers and to a lesser extent to, um, with parents. And um, there was a, a, a lot of places I spoke about this, a, a bit of a reliance on for those that did think about the role of parents and families um, and carers, a reliance on them sometimes, especially um, for young people who might have had disabilities, um, a heavy reliance on the parents being involved in this kind of online teaching uh, situation. So there was lots of links to URLs, whether it was fitness websites or, you know, emailed instructions about what to do. And then there was hard copies. There was books and workbooks and textbooks and copies of notes. And so it, 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 you can very much see and feel from what I've just listed, there was a lot of information that was getting pushed, pushed out into uh, young people's um, internet spaces, you know, um, predominantly. And, and there were some attempts to uh, create some student autonomy and uh, uh, you know like there were some some attempts to uh, have some choice um there was a lot of reliance on self-directed learning i.e will send you all the stuff you go ahead and do it and get get someone at home to help you out um and there was some some work that linked to social emotional development and well-being and these kinds of things and the family engagement piece was was uh, was really interesting um, and uh, collaboration, some of the papers that had collaborations between students and parents and teachers and um, how, how to involve community groups, um, you know, in those kinds of processes. Um, and I think in the main, a lot of that came as a way to get, you know, uh, parents on board in, in kind of complex uh, a time as well. So given those kinds of approaches, I think there was very little room um, for alternative ways of thinking about how we might teach. Um, or alternative perspectives to thinking about knowledge and knowing. So that would be questioning the material that we were sending. <laughs> um, so young people thinking about and questioning, you know, why are we receiving this information and how? Um, so content delivery was really prioritised and multiple studies stated that their main aim was really in these remote PE processes was the dissemination of knowledge and information. And also common amongst the literature was this idea that our our key role of PE during the pandemic was to keep kids was to keep young people keep learners active, and so that relates to um, you know instrumental purposes around health and physical activity that we spoke about before, and and so physical education kind of in this commodification kind of idea in vain as well became this this wow, if we, if we can't really have it face-to-face, -face, we might as well keep people fit kind of thing. And whether it worked or not, or, you know, like that, that's neither here, we didn't ask that question, but it, it was a very, those two, this information and this physically active became kind of like the, 
the role of physical education. Um, the well-being, I think I spoke about it previously, the well-being kind of angle um, was spoken about. It was mentioned that especially staff, they were worried about what was going on. They worried about their own health and the health of students. But, you know, it, it there wasn't a lot that was very clear about what was done about that, like, like what got created as a result of that. Yeah, we're all struggling, but, you know, let's ignore it and let's, let's you know, rally on, um, so to speak. So instead of, I think... I guess one of the things that we were surprised with was there was just very, 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 very scant evidence that instead of seeing this as an opportunity to go, whoa, yay, um, wow, PE and take and be online, wow, let's give this a crack um, and thinking about what kinds of pedagogical innovation might uh, shift um, on the be on the back of or draw into or, or feed into the pandemic in any kind of way. And instead, there was just lots of information. And I totally understand this. There was lots of information about the challenges, the barriers, the fears, the uncertainty. There was very much a, um, I don't know, um, a deficit, I guess, deficit sort of thinking and, and this idea of treading water and survival. And um, I don't think that that was going to constitute, even at that point, engaged pedagogy um, mm. because... You know, there's not that egalitarian kind of community building care for each other that was happening. It was just like, yeah, let's get to tomorrow. Yeah. So it was a lot of documenting of what happened, what are the barriers instead of what could be, how could you do something different in, in this? So I guess uh, if you were to imagine physical education as a tree, I feel like the COVID pandemic was this giant coming in and shaking the tree vigorously and things kind of fell out and other things didn't and other things, uh, you know, you know, hung on. So I'm, I'm wondering what your, uh, opinion is that did the, uh, the pandemic change physical education or change P are we 2018 to 2023, 24, is there a drastic difference in physical education or P or have, has there been any change? Um, I don't, I'd actually have to just go with um, kind of gut feeling and my own experiences on this. I mean, I think the pandemic changed all of us. It changed us all in different kinds of ways and it had its legacy that's lingering on in different kinds of ways. But I would go ahead and guess that we've probably all gone back to what we were doing before. Um, it was kind of a pause, <laughs> not a time to think and experiment, um, just a time to breathe and um I'm really hopeful that our experiences have provided some opportunities to teach and learn in different kinds of ways in the online space, especially. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I doubt whether it's been the prompt to go, oh, wow, so we should be, try to be more innovative um, in, our, in our current classes or because, you know, we, 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 we coped with that. So, wow. Um, I'd like to think the next time, next pandemic round, um, <laughs> So we're better equipped to think creatively about that online space, but I'm not quite sure. I, I, I don't know. My gut feeling is we'll, 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 we'll be more confident and it'll be less urgent. It'll still be rapid, um, but we may well fall back on the old things from, you know, the first pandemic. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, you know, like, I, yeah, I don't know whether that changes Pete or PE very much at all. Because I think that there's there's always been, especially in the U.S., there's always been people who homeschool their kids. 
they don't want to send their kids to public schools for whatever reason. And I think that there is that population and the pandemic just made that easier to do online physical education, online schooling, because it used to be like back in the days you go to school and you get your, your stuff and then you do it at home and you have some sort of correspondence with a school. But now it's all asynchronous online or, you know, however, whoever is teaching you has those materials and it's all online. But I don't think that the vast majority of people saw online education were like, that's what I want to do for the next four years of my secondary education. I want to be at home and do this. Granted, there are some people who, who like want that, but I think that the PE, I, I would lean towards what you were saying is the PE is mostly what we were doing before. Maybe there's a little bit more technology integrated because they have some videos that they made during the pandemic and they use that, you know, and, but I don't know if it's, I don't know if the vast majority of PE teachers are thinking like, I really learned from the pandemic and I'm changing the way I teach because of that to be more innovative, to be, you know, doing these different things. So, um, uh, do you, do you feel like, cause I think the PEAT programs, I think they have, they got for us specifically, I, I have felt post pandemic a much harder time engaging uh, undergraduate students on campus. Um, so I think that that's one kind of legacy thing that students came on campus, they were here 2017, 18, 19. They were hanging out together in the same place. They were hanging out outside of school. Now they take the online portion or they take a hybrid class don't pay for the parking pass for the whole semester because it's cheaper to come only on those specific days that they come to campus. So having a Monday event that I don't know, might be doing some fun physical activity with your other college student friends. They're like, well, well, Monday's not my day on campus. Like it to me and a lot of our students work, um, they work part-time, some work full-time and, and, push school on top, but I think it's, um, the engagement thing, not necessarily the structure of our PEAT program has changed, but the engagement with our students, even though we try, we're not getting it back because I think they're, they look at university differently because they were able to do it for the last two, three years while having a full-time job, while working and making money. And now it's now it's a totally different game. Yeah, for sure. And that, I mean, you know, that's, that's how marketplaces and consumerism works, right? <laughs> you, you, you give them something that then they get a place and, and people get a place for it that they do then have a choice uh, uh, to do that. And, and, and so, um, from a hoops point of view, especially that disconnection between others and that, that, um, you know, like not engaging with your learning in um in kind of democratic ways uh, to challenge systems and processes and in some kind of way you know you become passive it, it, it's a passive way of of learning um and so it won't quite it it, it it doesn't question well does therefore does does the online process become one of those traditional approaches that at um hooks would have critiqued and said it's now a traditional approach it's, yeah. it's it's it kind of qualifies as these things that don't really 
um, um, speak to some of the dimensions of engaging students in different kinds of ways, different kinds of students in different kinds of ways. So as we kind of wrap this up, I'm, I'm going to go back to your title. So what do you think Bell Hooks would think of remote teaching and learning and physical education during the pandemic? And what are kind of the next steps as we move from here? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a good question because, you know, like we, we did pose the question um, and we didn't get to ask Hooks, but um, I think what we concluded and what we kind of found was that, you know, remote teaching and learning in Pete and PE in response to the, the pandemic was consistently described in deficit terms and as disengaging and unmotivating, disconnected and lacking. And I think just even that kind of thing already is the antithesis to Hooks' intentions. So, uh, but this this didn't this, this didn't surprise us um, because it wasn't our choice. We we didn't choose to go online. It was stressful. It was challenging. It was uncertain. It was complex. Um, I guess can't really, you know, deny that. Um, what what surprised us was is um, the glass was half full. Of, I mean, sorry, half half empty, um, rather than being half full. And the focus on not trying new approaches and connecting and engaging with learners in different ways, not challenging the dominant knowledge and perceptions of P and TE, just going back to the books and and doing labs and sending out booklets and things and not adopting an approach that really acknowledged and worked with, not against the shared reality that we had at the time. Um, so I think in answer to our you know main question and your question here is, I think, I think Hooks was thinking it, it's not reflective of engaged pedagogy. I, I, don't, I don't want to put words in, in the mouth, but I, I think she would think it's not reflective of engaged pedagogy. Um, that it aired more on um, these traditional approaches that she spent most of her life trying to critique and critiquing. So what it did was it reproduced dominant knowledge with a focus on content and it severed theory from practice. And, 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 you know, we just went ahead and just said, you know, follow me. It disempowered learners and it disempowered teachers. Um, it, it neglected many aspects of um, multiculturalism and equity and, and um, diversity and it was quite dispassionate like we it was hard to get passionate about having a pretty dodgy kind of time um for all of us you know like i can I, I imagine how funny those videos must be for teachers who were showing them about look at me in the pandemic trying to make everybody smile or laugh and i remember doing it myself with ymca or i don't know some kind of dress up or a wig or glasses or whatever the feeling was that i had at that moment so I mean, I think next time round, I think what I'd like to see um, based upon books would be just this more idea of um, democratic and inclusive teaching in classrooms, um, acknowledging, um, you know, the truth of the situation that we're in and that it's a shared situation and it's actually okay to be vulnerable around each other. And so incorporating then different cultural experiences and the marginalization of young people, what did they need? What do they want to know? How are we going to get it to them? Um, exposing discriminatory practices rather than reinforcing them. Um, sharing stories and histories and families and life events and, and accepting that shared reality, um, I, I think would be really neat ways to reframe our thinking going into the, you know, into the next online space mode. Um, 
But I think what's really important to, to end on and, and, and would be my take home is while it might not have looked like engaged pedagogy, I think that Hooks would certainly hope that we learnt something from it, that we were able to reflect upon it and that we're able to use those learnings from this crisis situation and circumstance to rethink and reorient our teaching um, for the future um, with engaged pedagogy in mind. Um, and I, th I think I'd love love to, to think that that might be um, some way for other folks to think about teaching online in the future, but also teaching um, face to face in the future as well. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great point to end on because it's what your what your review uncovered was that we didn't really engage as we may have, like we probably should have, but it's not that it's not too late. Yes, we may have missed an opportunity during the pandemic to engage the learners online and do it in a different way, but we can take from that experience what we've learned and use that to propel something different. Use that now to look at, well, what did we do and what did we miss? And, and I think that that's, that's a great part of your paper is you highlight those things and it's clear like, well, it was pretty flat okay, we have a lot of reasons why it was pretty flat. There are a lot of people dying all around and it was just like a scary time and you're trying to get motivated to teach online. Like there's a lot of different things there. But if you engage now with what you've learned and take that further, instead of going back and reverting back to 2019 physical education and doing the same same things and not, not adapting and not evolving, um, so, um, I, I really appreciate your time. I, I thank you for sharing your, um, your content here. And I, then, um, I did get a, uh, Google scholar alert on you when, when this, um, paper came out. So, um, and we, we have, um, with a group, um, uh, of researchers from the U S, um, Kevin Mercier and Aaron Santeo and a ton of other people are two papers that you cite in here because we were part of what. Um, that COVID research was, and these two papers, it, they're so interesting because they have a life of their own. They've been cited a ton because they're kind of like, I mean, we had thousands of teachers fill out the survey, but again, it was just asking, what are you doing? How's it going? Like, what do you need? <laughs> like, wh how, what is online teaching like? And we did a qualitative review and a quantitative review of it. So, um, but really, really interesting stuff. Um, I, I appreciate you coming up. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for having me along uh, the so and for, you know, providing work. And I will see you in Chile at ICEF in, uh, in a few weeks. Uh, thanks everybody for coming on. Um, and I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her help in uh, producing the podcast. So we got, thanks. <laughs>